So I grew up in an older house. Um, so, and older houses just make a lot more noise. Uh, you know, creaky floors, pipes make a little bit more noise. The whole house is about as soundproof as a wet paper bag. And at one point, I was probably like eight or so, cousin was visiting and my folks tried to convince us that uh, there were folks who lived down in the basement. Uh, I don't remember what the family's name was, but you know, we poked around down there a little bit. There are a couple storerooms in the back. It's not a terribly big house, but you know, obviously there was nothing there. But you know, sometimes with all of the noises that an older house makes, you know, sometimes you kind of wonder. You know, floors creaking where somebody shouldn't be walking around, or later at night than anybody should be awake. And both in that house and in the studio apartment I'm living in now, they're both small, but it's kind of interesting what you can lose and sometimes more unexpectedly what you can find in a small place. You know, sometimes you wonder. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And as we always do, we want to take a second to thank all of our listeners. You're all so pretty. I can't believe how pretty our listeners are. You are. Good job. I'm not spying on you from holes in your walls. That would be weird. Speaking of. Speaking of. I heard some bumps in the house the other day. Oh, that's just Remy's imaginary friend. Oh, you're right. I was concerned there might be, you know, something living in our house. Like a rat. A raccoon. Or an opossum. We do have an opossum in our house. What if it was a person? Yeah, right, whatever. If a person was living in the walls of our house. People tell that story all the time. You know, that seems like it's a really common urban legend that someone hears knocking and then they find out that someone's been living in their walls or in their house for the last few months. Bum, bum, bum. Well, I think it's an easy one to sell yourself on. If you hear weird stuff in your house, if you have like a rodent or whatever, and you've heard this, it's probably pretty easy to talk yourself into believing that could be happening. I don't know if it's easy to say <laughs> that you could believe that someone's actually living in the walls of your house. But, like, you would take it seriously. Like, if someone came into your clinic and was like, hey, I think I'm hearing stuff in my house, and I think there's somebody watching me. And, like, you'd have to take that seriously, right, as a medical practitioner? I would take it seriously. <laughs> Okay, I, I feel like there's a butt. <laughs> I feel like there's a butt coming. But I would not be calling the cops. What? Who would you call? Ghostbusters? I would call the psychiatrist. Oh, why? Because they're delusional. How do you know? It just fits the definition. Okay, what's the definition? Well, you know, a delusion is a type of psychosis where you have trouble differentiating truth from non-truth but really in differentiating what is 
reality or not. Delusions are usually thought of as non-bizarre. So that would mean like not pink elephants. That's more hallucination, right? So a hallucination is just something that affects your senses. Okay, so like even if you smell something that's not there, that's still a hallucination, even if it's not a pink elephant? Yes. I don't know what pink elephants smell like. Probably cotton candy. A bizarre delusion. Can you have a bizarre delusion? Oh, yeah. So just think of something bizarre. A pink elephant. Or like aliens. Or, you know, thinking you're... God. Yeah. Superman. Abraham Lincoln. Jesus Christ. Superstar. Same thing. Yeah. So those are bizarre. But then you have like your more colloquial domestic delusions. Yes, to where in a stretch it could happen. Okay, so they're possible. Taking into account everything we know about physics, the universe, the this plane of reality, it could happen. Right. So like someone watching you. Definitely, and that fit into the paranoid delusions that we'd be worried about and someone that, that came in saying, I think there are people living in my house with me. Paranoid is one flavor of delusion. There are other flavors, correct? Oh, there are lots of fun ones. Yeah. <laughs> like your favorite, when I, we were talking about this, the erotomatic. It's where you imagine that someone's in love with you? Yes. It's usually a celebrity. Right, of course. Yeah, because how else would you manufacture an entire relationship without having access to a human? Well, I'm, it has been done. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, I'm not actually asking. And it will be done again. Not to me, though. No, that'd be terrible. Don't do that. I don't know. Um, I've read some of the reviews about your voice. Oh, God. And then there's like the one where you think you're dead. And there are all kinds. All kinds. It's like Baskin Robbins of delusions. If you want to go read about that. Super fun. We'll probably do a show on each eventually. So stick around. Well, so paranoid delusions can include things like you're being followed or you've been poisoned or someone's living in your house. Um, But they are isolated delusions. So you can kind of otherwise... Be normal. So you might have just this one kind of fixation, kind of this imagined fixation on one thing. Like you might think that your mailman is out to get you or whatever, and you fixate on that, but then you lead an otherwise normal life. You just really don't like the mailman, and you might bite him in a dog costume one day with any luck, because I would like to cover that on this podcast. If you're planning on doing that... (laughs) We don't have a mailman. We have a male lady. And I don't like the way she looks at me. But we have lovely male people that listen to our show. I don't like the way she looks at me. (laughs) Sam, maybe you need to call your psychiatrist. I don't have a psychiatrist. Maybe you need to get one. (laughs) If you're a psychiatrist, you can call the Just a Story hotline and leave your contact info. I have lots to talk about. I know that you were you would get all like diagnosis happy and you'd be like, I can't believe I'm actually witnessing such a perfect paranoid delusion in one of my patients. And you'd be like writing letters to the Bureau of Freud and saying things like I've done it, et cetera, et cetera. But what if there really was someone living in the walls? That's not like you said, it's not that bizarre. You're right. It, um, it's something that could happen in a stretch. Okay, like you remember that time I went to see that house and we loved it? Yes. <laughs> and then we were walking out and she's like, by the way, that's where Joe lives. And we're like I beg your pardon. And she like points to a random door. And, and it's like a refurbished garage. Yeah. And it's like a little father-in-law apartment. And she shows us like all this soundproofing she's put in. It's like a double door with like locks on both sides. And so it looks kind of prison-y. And we're like, uh, okay, good to know. And you <laughs> you kept going like, but where's the dude? <laughs> and we looked at the house. And we called it the one with the dude. And as we considered our options and did not take it. If she hadn't informed us, <laughs> we could have moved in and found him months later. 
there's a strange door that's locked. And we have no clue what's on the other side. But I swear I hear someone moving around in there. You know, that makes me think of something that really did happen. Okay. And this happened at the Ohio State University. Really? As they like to say. You did that? They like to do that on football games. They do do it on football games. I think they do it on everything. So yeah, the Ohio State University. So in September of 2013, there were nine students living in an off-campus house at Ohio State. They started noticing some odd things. Cupboards would be left open. The microwave door would be left open. Things would go missing. They'd hear odd noises. And it just started being a little too much. Mm-hmm. But the house was very busy. It's like, yeah, I was about to say there are nine kids living there, and they're all in college. Of course the microwave was left open. But it just kept getting to be more and more and more odd. And they found a locked door. Huh. In their basement. How about that? And, you know, they just thought it was a utility closet. Mm-hmm. With all these odd happenings, they contacted the property manager. Mm-hmm. And they came and bashed the door open. As you do. And they found a fully furnished room. No, they didn't. Complete with textbooks, framed pictures, a sink, and a toilet. So this is not like a hidey hole. This no. is like someone has decorated. And so after that, they changed the locks to the house. Because they could not find the person that was living there. They couldn't find the dude. The dude was gone. Later, dude contacts them. <laughs> oh, no. And he's like, That's a ballsy move, dude. Well, he's like, hey, guys, can I get my stuff? <laughs> dude. Dude had had a cousin who was living in this house the summer beforehand. And that's how he had gotten a key to the house and had established his little hidey hole. His, like, Martha Stewart living hidey hole sounds like. It doesn't sound like a, like, ratty, you know? No, it's like, a, it's fully furnished. <laughs> it's like you can see it on the real estate page. Mm-hmm. It's like, off-campus home. Comes with a dude. Comes with a dude and a hidey hole. Fully furnished. <laughs> Cable included. <laughs> and so he was another Ohio State student. And he got his stuff and moved on with his life. <laughs> They're like, so long, dude. Abide. Exactly. Okay. Well, so at least once, college students who thought their place was haunted were not crazy in the history of the world. <laughs> this has happened once. Probably only once. Yeah. So, okay, good show. Yeah, except for in Japan. Okay. There's a great story. <laughs> Okay. In 2008, there was a 57-year-old man living in Kasuye, Japan, and he just thought someone was continually breaking into his house. There'd be things moved, food would go missing, and he was getting very concerned. Of course... I mean, why didn't he like think he had Alzheimer's or something? <laughs> it sounds very much like, oh, I can't find my keys. I'm sure other people thought he did. <laughs> and other people didn't believe him. He, so he set up surveillance cameras in his house. Okay, that's one way. If you think you might be delusional, this is a good way to test it. <laughs> and it would send video to his cell phone. Mm-hmm. Because it's Japan and they have technology that like barely exists here, right? As he was out one day, he was watching the video on his cell phone and he saw the image of a woman walking around his house. No. Why? So he, so he called the police and they came to his house and found that it was locked just as he left it. Is she a ghost? Oh, it's the grudge. He watched a videotape. 
and they searched around the house, trying to make sure nothing was missing. They couldn't find any source of breaking and entering until they were searching in his closet. Mm-hmm. And they opened one cabinet up at the top of his closet that was built to you know, store uh, you know, linens and things. And they found her curled up there and she had a little bed made. Another hidey hole, Jacob. So this was 58 year old. Tatsuko Harakawa. The cleverest and most resourceful person to ever be homeless ever, because she was not at all homeless. You know, they said she kept very clean, and when he was gone, she would take showers and clean up after herself most of the time. And this is Japan, so she was just charged with trespassing. They don't they don't have a, like, you stole my Pringles charge in Japan. <laughs> Bitch, I want my Pringles back. This is not Ohio State. <laughs> okay, sorry. All right, so do you want, do you want to hear another one? You have a fucking another one? Of course I do. So, this one is about a single mother named Tracy. Okay. And she and her five kids were living in a house in Rock Hill, South Carolina. So this is America and not a college campus. I don't like where this is going. Yeah, and this, again, just recently happened. In September of 2012, she started hearing weird sounds coming from her attic. And they would start to see nails popping out of the ceiling. Oh my god, it's a ghost. And so she sent her son to investigate. And he found a ghost. And they didn't find anything. Bro, it was a ghost. And then they called Zach. And he's like, can we knock down your floorboards? I want to get an excavation team out here to destroy your house. Let's call the ghost a bitch and see what he does. Bro. Okay, sorry. We're done with our impressions. Just kidding. For now. <laughs> For now. So she sent her sons to investigate. And they didn't find anything. And they're like, mommy, cray cray. And went on. And then, As you do. But then things continued to happen. She'd hear the noises. Started to see plaster falling from the ceiling. So this is a fat ghost. Apparently. <laughs> Heavy feet. And at 2.30 in the morning one day, she heard a loud noise. And so she had her family go into the attic. And they found her ex-boyfriend hiding there. She dated him 12 years ago. Oh my god. He had been sent to prison because he stole Tracy's car. And he had recently gotten out about 90 days prior and had been living in the attic for what they estimate to be two weeks. They found cups of feces and urine. Oh, so he did not have a nice little toilet and a fully appointed hidey hole. It was not fully furnished. Oh, no. And they found a hole cut in Tracy's bedroom ceiling so he could watch her. Oh, my God, psycho. And to make it even better, he fled and was not caught. Oh, my God, no. Ah, I don't like that one. Do you have any ex-boyfriends in prison I need to know about? Probably. I haven't kept up with them. Yeah, probably, actually. (laughs) So I want to issue a challenge to our listeners. As you were telling this story, for some reason, all I could think about was the song Stacy's Mom. You know that song? Of course. Okay, I think that that could be rewritten about Tracy and her ex. So if you want to write us a song called Tracy's Ex to the tune of Stacy's Mom and send it to us, we will send you a Posco Read It prize. That would be amazing. Like, do you want that to happen? Because I really do. I would love that. Can you please do that for us? It'd be great. And if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And you don't want to hear me do it. <laughs> hey, we got limericks for our limerick challenge. Yeah, we did. Okay. So I want, I, I want a Tracy's ex to the tune of Stacy's mom. Okay. Well, those were adorable. Your scary stories about creepy people living in the houses were just cute as buttons. Cups of feces and urine. Adorable. <laughs> I have one that 
is maybe the scariest story ever. Okay, does this one have a real ghost? Sort of. So it was 1985, 1986 ish in Massachusetts, and there was a girl named Annie Andrews, and she was 15, and she lived with her dad and her sisters. And her mom had just passed away after she had like a really long bout with cancer. And so the girls were all out of sorts. And you can imagine the household was just kind of a hard place to be because it's these girls living with their dad. They're all teenagers or younger. So you can imagine the house is just sort of in emotional turmoil. The dad's taking on extra work to make ends meet. And the girls are home by themselves a lot. In all this chaos, there is a bright spot for Annie. One of her friends had passed along her phone number to this guy that she thought Annie would probably like. I cannot see this going well. Right? This is before the internet, so I think this is the internet dating equivalent of that time. And so this guy starts calling her, and they talk for hours every day, and he tells her that he's the captain of a football team at another school, and like sells her on this big heartthrob mental image of himself and he is a good listener and they do talk a lot and have a lot in common and she really likes him and his name is Danny LaPlante so she decides after a while that maybe it would be okay if they met because everything's going so well oh a meet cute a meet cute right and so they go out for ice cream and he comes to pick her up and she opens the door and she's like, oh. That wasn't on your Tinder profile. <laughs> exactly. She's like, oh, I knew I should not have swiped on the one that only had the face pictures. God, when will I learn? But she was like, oh, bait and switch. And here you are. And this is awkward. Guess I can get ice cream out of this. Yeah. So they go for ice cream and it's awkward and awful. And she's like, okay, well, that's done. Let's move on. So she goes home and, you know, she's spending time babysitting her sisters and, you know, trying to find some normalcy after this little blip, after this huge tragedy. You know, she and her sisters are teenagers and they miss their mom. And so if you're a teenager and you miss your mom, you might consider a seance a good idea. Oh, sure. Right. So they do consider it a good idea. And they do, in fact, do a seance and try to contact their mom and Make sure everything's okay with her and all's going well. And after that, things just kind of don't level out again. They start hearing knocking sounds and pipes rattling. And doorbell would ring. And they'd go to answer it and no one would be there. And one night they were up watching movies late while their dad was at work. And just the girls at home. And they decided to pop some popcorn. They poured some of it in a bowl, but it didn't all fit in the bowl. Because, you know, it never all fits in the bowl. They went and ate their popcorn and they came back to get the rest and the bag was gone. And things would move, like they would leave, you know, their hairbrush in one place, then come back and it would be in a different place. And So so it was the mom. Right. Well, that's what they think. And it's really upsetting to them because it seems like she's not communicating with them directly, but she's still there enough to be unhappy. They think mom is there screwing with them. Right. And so you can imagine... Not a good mental state to put oneself in after the loss of a loved one. Eventually, it gets to the point where it's very hard to ignore. As they're grappling with this, they realize it only happens when their father's not home. So when they go to him and they're like, Dad, we're hearing things. Things are moving. We feel like someone's watching us. He goes all, Dr. Me, and is like, delusions. Okay, I get that. <laughs> yeah, he was like, you should probably see a psychiatrist. And they're like, oh, dad, we don't want to see a psychiatrist. It's our mom's ghost. Don't be silly. Yeah, let's see a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, so one night 
the girls are home alone and they are getting ready for bed. And the youngest sister goes upstairs and opens her closet and finds Danny standing there with makeup all over his face, wearing their mother's clothes, holding a hatchet. And so he ties them all up and I don't actually I don't know if he ties them all up. I don't know because I can't find two sources that say the same thing. Right. This is so funny that we just kept digging into this and this really happened. It really truly did happen. But the details get so muddled because in some tellings of this true story that really did happen, there are bits about messages being written in ketchup to look like blood. Right. Yeah. And then in one version of the story, the dad goes upstairs after his daughters have had a complete freak out about the noises and the strange movings of things. And he goes up there and finds Danny in his wife's wedding dress wearing a wig under a big message in ketchup that says, marry me. And he's attacked with a hatchet. And then sometimes they come home and find Danny standing upstairs looking out at them. And the police are called in after that. And a lot of these things are in legitimate news sources. Right. Yeah. It's it's very hard to wade through. But at some point, the facts of the case are this. Danny was kind of disguised and he did attack the family with a hatchet there was an escape of some kind and the police were called local newspapers the massachusetts papers at the time say that the family escaped out of a window like all of them but if you look up there are several different stories that say the eight-year-old girl the youngest sister escaped and ran across to a neighbor's house and called the police. At any rate, the police are called in and Danny's nowhere to be seen. They can't find him. They cannot find Norman Bates. They cannot find Norman Bates anywhere. They look and they just, you know, have no luck. And then the noises start again. And two days later, they come in and do a really thorough search of the home and find a giant hole behind the washing machine that he had carved out in order to access the crawl space between the walls. And he had been living in the home for upwards of two weeks. And all of the girls' rooms had holes drilled in the walls where he had been watching them. This was a 15-year-old kid. Yes. After this incident, he's sent away. But the details surrounding that conviction and sentencing are really hazy again. Right. It's much more clear-cut what happened after he got out of prison two years later. Right. At this point... He breaks into the home of a family called the Gustafsons, and he murders a pregnant woman and her two children. Yeah, so I was reading an article about the judge who convicted him for the second incident, and there's some really just sad quotes from the father who was testifying at the trial. Right, who's lost his entire family. Yeah. He went to the house and found his wife dead in the bed, blood, she'd been shot. And then they later found the two other children had also been killed. And she was pregnant at the time this happened. Right. So he's a monster. He does this when he's 18 years old. And the warning signs were so clearly there. I mean, the stalking and the breaking and entering and the violence. And, you know, a lot of times people were like, he was just the nicest guy. I don't know how Ted Bundy could have possibly done this. But then you have people like this and you're like, yeah. 
Saw that coming from a mile away. So he's still in prison and he sued the state of Massachusetts and won. He won? He won. For what? They violated his religious rights. So like they wouldn't let him pray? Well, he's Wiccan. I bet he's not actually Wiccan. I, he is some weird self-homogenized brand of something having to do with not being in a main denomination that he has decided to call Wiccan. Yeah, I have a feeling this is his own personal made-up religion that he stole a name for. Yeah, but he sued them because they would not give him cake on Wiccan holidays or provide him with dragon's blood. So did he win Dragon's blood? I think he won like $138. Where does one get dragon's blood? I think blood? it must be a name of something else, you know? like, But that's the quote. Like, if you Google it, that's the thing that it says over and over. But it's got to be like an herbal ex- extract or something. No, I think it's. I think he really thought he should get dragon's blood. And they're like, we're not killing this Komodo for you, man. Where's Daenerys when you need her? <laughs> I think her dragons would eat him. Where's Daenerys when you need her? Exactly. Um, that sounds like a good plan to me. Go, go get your dragons, bud. <laughs> go, go. go. Feel ahead. free. Feel free. Throw him in the pit. That's fine. <laughs> so yeah, he's incarcerated. I think he's like 38 now. He's still young. Got a long time to go. And with his cake, he's going to outlive us all, I guess. So listening to all of these stories, you know, if you were to hear the beginning of the stories from the outside, you would say, oh man, this guy's just paranoid, this guy's crazy, these people are nuts. I can't believe they think someone else is hiding in their house. Which, by the way, we picked our favorites. Oh my god, there are so many stories. It's ridiculous. I was upset by the sheer volume of material that existed for this episode. It was hard to pick. There's some really good ones. <laughs> creepy exes are such a like problem for me. I don't have like any real bad creepy exes that I think would break into my house or anything like that. But like just in theory, that's so it's such a violation. Well, that's what I think of is this kind of violation of the home. The home being a safe place. In theory. In theory, exactly, that it should be. In our minds, that idea of home is Oh, we're going down a castle doctrine path here. I don't like it. I don't like it. (laughs) It's one of, you know, safety and security. And you always have the right to defend it, and you should be safe there, and all those things. And this is something that has been around for as long as humans have had homes. I'm sure even nomadic people felt a certain sense of boundary and sanctity about whatever campsite they're in like wherever their community was i think it extends beyond walls like i said i'm really bothered by the ones where the people were invited into the house at some point or invited into these people's lives for any length of time and sort of perverted that contract that social contract that they were allowed to be part of Three of the four stories were that case. Right. And then you have the very nice, neat lady in Japan, who I think is like sort of a badass, I have to say. (laughs) Creepy, but a badass. It's not like he was using the top of his closet. (laughs) Or going to eat that? I looked. I saw he wasn't eating that. He was getting a little fat. (laughs) He needed a diet, and I cleaned up after myself when I showered and used a shampoo. So this made me think about the idea of, it's going to be a jump. Are you ready? Are you ready to make a weird jump with me? I'm always ready. It made me think about vampires. Of course it did. You're familiar with the concept of vampires. Yes, they suck your blood. Yes. And they're dead. Yes, kind but not. Undead. They're, yes. But not like a zombie. zombie. No, no, no. Much more refined and dignified than a zombie. Oh, they're sparkling. No. They're very cute. 
No. They only... If you say anything else related to the Stephanie Meyer mythology, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> Anne Rice did Sexy Vampire right. Okay. <laughs> that is so true. But yes, they are undead creatures who sustain themselves by sucking blood from human beings. And there are many fine points of lore and mythos that go along with a creature. Now, in its most popular, like, kind of Eastern European Dracula Bram Stoker form, and I understand that Bram Stoker was not Eastern European, but he did base his novel more on that tradition. One of the fine tenets is that you have to invite the vampire into your home. Right, that's super important. They'll wait at your window, and you have to have them come in so you can look at each other, and he can watch you sleep. Stop it with a <laughs> Stephanie Meyer. But you're right. That's a classic tenant that they have to be invited in. It's about to get weird. We haven't gotten weird yet. I was looking into why that is. Because these people were invited into the home and then they began to prey on the people that were there. And I think kind of sucked the life energy out of them in a way. You know, like make them think they were crazy, scare them. Eventually, like some of them tried to harm them. One guy pooped in an attic. Weird chaos, right? The reason that the vampire has to be invited into a home is because all living people are sort of protected, sort of blessed right from the beginning with a sort of divine right to their home in mythology. Well, no, or like in Game of Thrones. Like you know, in Game of Thrones. Even the salt, you know, you're protected. Unless you're going to get married, watch out. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole different thing. If the living are protected, they are protected from something. In this case, it's the vampire. That's where we started, right? And the reason that the vampire has to be its own special class, it can't be just like a living person, is because it's a liminal being. So liminal means kind of in between. These are, these are your classic gray area creatures, like the undead, not living, not dead, the thing that's between. And they're a variety of examples of these. They can either be hybrids, kind of like centaurs, or they can be more like ghosts or vampires or whatever, where they just really don't fit neatly into one category. And so they are not in that contract. They don't have that right. And the idea of that entitlement goes back to a Greco-Roman tradition. Okay, so when I think of people just showing up, <laughs> just kind of inviting themselves into homes. yeah. I think of the god Zeus. Okay, yes, it's exactly right. He was all about showing up at these maidens' houses. Not really their houses, their fields, like, pretending to be cows and things. But yes, he did have quite the tendency to just make himself welcome wherever he went. And that's because Zeus is, in the Greek tradition, called Zeus Zenius, and in the Roman tradition, called Jupiter Hospitalis. Now, he is the god of hospitality, because he is the protector of both the suppliant... And the stranger. Wait, so what's a suppliant? It's someone who supplies things. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks for clearing that up. Well, that's what it means. Like supplying what Zeus is supplying. Yeah. 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 Uh, run away. You're going to have some weird hybrid baby. Watch out. Oh, good. I'm just going to go over here and be a white cow so hair doesn't kill me. So Zeus, or Jupiter, is, in theory, the protector of this sacred contract, this kind of sacred hospitality between a host and a guest. This was taken very literally, especially in Greece. When strangers approached your home, if they were traveling, you were expected to invite them in, and you were not allowed to inquire about their name or background, because it was assumed that you both took this social contract incredibly seriously. 
the host could not harm the guest, and the guest could not harm the host. So you couldn't even just, like, ask, like, what their name was? Well, I mean, you could, because it would be weird if you didn't. Because you're like, tell me everything, and people do. It's so weird. <laughs> but, but one could not? Like, it was not a require. You could ask, and they didn't have to tell you, kind of thing. Like, it was like, that wouldn't have been a red flag. It would like, be for me. I know, me too. If they were just, like, passing through, you'd be like, oh, how's it going? What's your name? And they'd be like, I'd prefer not to say. And you were not allowed to be like, that's creepy. Get out of my house or else the gods would hurt you. <laughs> right. So if you broke the social contract, which was taken very seriously, like I said, the gods would rain down wrath and things upon you. So it was not in your best interest. And it was a bond equivalent to like a commercial contract between the client and a patron or anything like that. It held up. It had weight. It was a religious institution as well as like a social institution. There are a few other gods that are specifically the guardians of like the gateway, the threshold, the boundary. In that tradition, you have Janus. Oh, right. The two-faced god. So he could look in and out. Right. He's a very liminal being in that manner as well. January is named after Janus because it's the first month of the year. And that character presides over endings and beginnings. And like my favorite from this list is in Greek would be Hecate. And in the Roman tradition, it's a goddess called Trivia. Of course you love Trivia. I do. Is she the goddess of our podcast? Basically. In fact... <laughs> Way more than you realize, probably, because she's not only in charge of trivia, which I don't know if she actually is or not. She's the goddess of magic, witchcraft, nighttime, ghost, crossroads, and necromancy. Ooh, that's right up our alley. I know, I love her. Well, then one other is Terminus, who is the Roman guardian of boundaries. And I think that's more like political boundaries. Right. For a very long time, we've been creating deities to protect this sacred space. What's ours? They guard doorways. They keep people from coming in. And look at the things like associated with trivia, for example, where you have witchcraft and necromancy and ghost and nighttime and all the mysterious. It's the boundaries between the normal and the abnormal, the, the natural and the supernatural. Yeah. It's very and it's such an interesting space. When I think of people hiding in homes, mm -hmm. and I try not to go down the creepy I can't sleep at night rabbit hole, this idea is still pretty scary and terrifying. Yeah, I think of like Anne Frank. Okay, honey, I don't know that Ohio, the Ohio State University case is going to bother me quite as much as fucking Anne Frank. Are you serious? That's your happy story? I just said it's terrifying. <laughs> it's still terrifying. The Holocaust cannot be your happy story. Well, you know, the reason it's happy uh -huh. is because so many people went out of their way to try to help the Jewish people hide from the Nazi regime. They showed them hospitality. Exactly. It's estimated, and there's no really great number to say how many people were hidden, how many people helped hide other people. But they can make some guesses. Okay. Know, we know about some of the big ones, you know, like Schindler. And there are several other people in similar positions that helped save thousands and thousands. But there was also some of these common working people that invited um, Jewish families and kids into their homes to just try to protect them from this horrible fate that was awaiting them if someone did not. It's estimated that in Germany alone, up to 20,000 people 
participated in this. And so there's an actual museum in Berlin dedicated to them called the Silent Heroes Memorial Center. And it's in the old pre-war Jewish quarter of Berlin. There they have a few different exhibits and they have a list of the names and they only have 300 names. They were very good at keeping secrets. You'd have to be. Berlin's mayor gave the most German statement on this museum ever. Did he now? And he said, Compared to the number of people who allowed Nazi atrocities to happen, or even took part in them, the people who shielded Jews were a tiny minority. But he goes on. But it is the minority that gives us direction. By commemorating these courageous people, we are ensuring that attacks on human dignity will not be tolerated. Okay, that last statement's actually beautiful and dramatic. Yeah, it gives a little positive spin. But that first part is just like, really? <laughs> Anne Frank, as we all read in high school. <laughs> or junior high, whatever. Was a young girl that was hidden in a home in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And her diaries become famous. In the Netherlands, about 28,000 Jews were forced into hiding whenever the Nazi regime came to take them. And about 16,000 people survived. That's crazy. And a lot of those were hidden like Anne Frank was. There's actually a book out about some of these stories of um, Dutch Jewish children who were hidden called Hidden Like Anne Frank. It talked about how just terrible this was for the kids besides just the obvious part of it. You know, Nazis are coming. They're trying to wipe out Mortal this peril race, hanging imminent. That kind of yeah. thing. But think of it from a kid perspective. And they were oh. losing their homes They were losing their safe spaces. They were losing the love of their families because many of these children, the families would give them up to try to protect them. You know, they would kind of pay people to watch them and stuff like that to try to help, you know, Mm -hmm. buy food and things because food was extremely scarce at the time. So some people, you know, took kids in just to try to, you know, of course you had to have a helpful bone there. But also to get some of those finances to try to help feed the entire group of people. basically. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And so they had to have these new identities created. They'd lose their names. One girl that was betrayed and imprisoned in Auschwitz later said that it was good to use my real name again. It was only then that I realized how difficult it had been to keep using that other name. Bliam Emden. I savored my own name. So at the time when they're supposed to be forming their own identities and kind of exploring and figuring out where they fit in the world, they are being told you don't fit in the world and you have to be a new person. Yeah, who you are does not count in this world. You can't be that. Yeah, and they talk about how the kids that later became adults had so much trouble just connecting with other people and developing love for their families that all of that just safety was just gone. Well, there's that famous image of the girl. It's called Home. I believe she was, I can't remember if she was in hiding or if she actually was in a concentration camp, but it's just, we're talking about how children were affected by this and it makes me think of it. She was asked to draw a picture of her home and she's drawn this maddening chalk scribble that's just nothing but chaos and jagged circles. Right, it's heartbreaking. She has this like shell-shocked look on her face. Yeah, it's absolutely what it is. It's it's so sad. And another just great little moment in the book is when Jap Sitter, another boy that was in hiding at the time, was talking about how 
you know, just not everyone was bad in these situations. And how he really did feel that you know, a lot of these German soldiers were kids themselves that were being forced to do things they didn't want to do. Well, hi- hello, Hitler Youth, yeah. yeah. They were just brainwashed. And that one time, whenever their house was being searched, he was hiding in a cupboard. And a German soldier came, and he opened the cupboard door, and he saw the boy sitting there, hiding. The German soldier began to cry, and closed the door and left the home. That gives me chills. It makes me so sad. I'm so happy. I'm so sad. and so awful. And despite all this, I do believe that people really are good. And there's another great story about this family, and they had a similar situation. They had to be split up. The parents gave the girls away to different families to go into hiding in Holland. You know, they changed her name. They cut her hair because they thought her long braids made her look too Jewish. And they were sent to live in other homes. Just these horrible circumstances, no food. At one time they were eating crushed up tulip bulbs and flour mixed together just to try to sustain themselves to the next day. The parents found a place to hide as well. One not nearly as safe as these other people's homes because there they could just act like they were their cousins or the other kids. Or It's easier to explain a stray child. Exactly. And so the adults found a hiding place in a church. They spent a very long amount of time hiding behind a church organ where there was a secret room carved out. And they had to kind of sedate themselves the entire time they were there, taking sleeping pills to make sure that they wouldn't move and make noise as churchgoers came. What was it like when that organ was played? After the incident, you know, once they got out and they did get out and the entire family survived which is amazing and they were able to come back together as a family but they said that their mother hated organ music (laughs) for the rest of her life you get to do that lady you get that right you have the right to refuse organ music i read about this briefly and one thing i thought was so interesting was they were talking about like assigning the new identities to the children and they said boys were especially hard to hide if you were going to live a public life So a lot of the younger boys would be dressed as girls and they would go into the restrooms with the ladies because they were afraid that if anyone saw that they were circumcised, they would be found out. And I just Mm -hmm. thought that was like an incredibly interesting detail, like one I would not have thought of. (laughs) That's why I was not in charge of planning this. So they're just these great people that show that there really is some positivity to humanity even in the absolute darkest moment for sure it's just so great to hear these kind of things you know i do want to have a little side here oh god where are we going since that might have been although happy a little bit of a downer give you a ridiculous urban legend there was a play being put on at the local community center about anne frank Well, yeah, the Diary of Anne Frank play. And the girl that was playing Anne Frank was terrible. Worst Anne Frank ever. Worst actress ever. Everyone just was sitting through this play groaning. And the legend goes that whenever the Germans come in searching the house for her, someone in the audience yells out, She's hiding in the attic! (laughs) No, that's so terrible. That didn't happen. No, it's No. It's a ridiculous urban legend I stumbled on when I was reading this. It's a good one. It's a little positivity there. A little levity. To go with just the amazing positivity that goes with these people risking their lives. You know what? Badasses. 
they are badasses. There's so many great stories about people just risking their lives to try to help these poor persecuted Jewish people. Right, because what would happen to them? They'd be shot just right there. Yeah. Keeping with the theme of badasses putting their asses on the line for other people and being just all-around good folks, I don't think we can, you know, forget the American contribution to this legacy. Of helping hide Jews from Nazis? Helping hide enslaved people from their would-be owners? Oh, it's like the Underground Railroad. That's the one. That's the one I'm thinking of, actually. So the Underground Railroad was not an actual railroad. Unfortunately, it's not a subway system. That would have been much more convenient. It was a term used to describe this kind of like loose network of abolitionists and freed people of color who would assist people in self-emancipation. Right, the conductors. Right. They like took the took it all the way. They're like, we love this metaphor. It's fabulous. Give me a hat. So it was very covert. There's no official system. It was all very word of mouth and you had to know the right person and it was interracial, like a lot of black people, a lot of white people, everybody helping to try to get people who were enslaved out of the US and up to Canada. So why were they trying to get them to Canada and not just like the North? Okay, well, that has to do with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Oh, right, right, right. Which prohibited anyone from helping slaves escape because they were property. And if you were caught, you could be sent back, even if you were caught in Maine. Yeah, even if you were caught in Maine and had set up a nice little hat shop or whatever, you could still be jerked out of your life and put back into slavery. Anyone who assisted a person who was fleeing slavery would face their own set of legal ramifications. It necessitated secrecy, but it also pushed the line for freedom all the way up to the Canadian border instead of just out of the slaveholding states. So this system, this loose system, sprang up to kind of combat that and allow people to do what they could to help people not be owned by other people, which is a pretty noble cause. Seems like a good idea. Yeah, Yeah. it was a good idea. And there were so many methods that took shape during this time. There were routes, like one in particular I read about was a place where a tornado had passed and torn up a bunch of giant trees and like pulled all the roots up and it made it like unnavigable for people on horseback, anyone searching for them basically. And it gave them a lot of good hiding places and so they'd take that as part of the route or they'd, you know, stick to ravines or... And it would constantly be changing. Right, right? pretty much, yeah. One of my favorite aspects of this, one of the things I find endlessly fascinating, are the actual architectural innovations that people came up with for creating these hiding spaces in their homes for people to come in and have safety. And as I was reading, I found several that I just thought were ingenious. One house was called Hall Place, and it was in Glasgow, Kentucky. And a man named Judge Tompkins, who had been one of Abraham Lincoln's professors had owned the home. It was open to an underground network of caves and it came to be known as Cave City. So he would use this cave system that kind of existed in the area to let people pass. And I mean, that's Kentucky's kind of a key point because you're right at the edge. And if no. you can get through Kentucky, you can you can do pretty much anything you'd like to do. Well, you say that, but there were people in the north that were bounty hunters. Oh, no, absolutely. They were men. They could have been from the south. They could have been just... From the North and and been Southern sympathizers. They were out hunting. Right. And so it was easier to hide there still, though, as 
you know, a person of color, there was a greater chance of you being a free person of color if you were the North. Right, but that's why they had to continue that secrecy oh, all the way, all yes. the way to the Canadian border. And then there was a home which today is known as Ashley Manor. I'm not certain that that was what it was called at the time. It's in Cape Cod, and in that home, there's a bookcase on one floor that conceals a ladder, and on the another floor, it there's a hidden panel, and this ladder goes all the way from the basement to the attic. And it's completely concealed, and it's the only way to access it. And so people could be brought into the basement and go up to the attic, and no one would be the wiser. What I found interesting about this home is it was constructed in 1699. This arrangement was originally installed to hide loyalists during the American Revolution, and later it was used to hide people fleeing slavery. So it has a lot of American tradition going on and then there's the monroe house in michigan and that one's interesting because there's like a hundred foot underground tunnel that leads up to a secret trap door that goes into a crawl space that goes on to reveal these two rooms that have been built between the first and second floor that are not apparent unless you're coming up through the secret tunnel and so there was like an entire floor of the house that was concealed it's only two rooms, but about 12 adults could be concealed in there. And over the 14 years that it was a station on the Underground Railroad, they helped about 400 people get to Canada. Cincinnati was really a major point of connection in this labyrinthine escape route. And there were a lot of Quakers there, and it was a good central location. Quakers were huge abolitionists. It goes right. against everything in their religion. And ours, too, but, uh, you know. But they had very strongly held beliefs. You know, it kind of goes against, you know, mostly everything in every religion, if you actually read it. Who actually reads it? The Quakers. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, it's kind of a Quaker stronghold, and very central, important abolitionist Point. And that's really where the notion that we should form some kind of network to help these people seeking emancipation took off. Because before you had people kind of helping organize this, it was usually just physically fit younger men who could manage the escape. But there were a lot of women and children and a lot of older people that wanted out too. So one of the most compelling stories that I found as I was reading about this was about 28 people who decided that they were going to make it to Canada. And these like women, kids, adults, men, everything. Yeah, a mixed bag. They set out and they found this guy named John Fairfield. And he was a rescuer for hire. And so they paid him off with, like, the money that they were able to scrape together from, like, being hired out and selling baskets and things. And he decided that he was going to help them make their way to Canada. And he's in Kentucky. So he's a white guy in Kentucky who's helping these people out. If he's found out, it's not going to go well for him. So he's equally invested in not getting caught. So the first thing they have to do is they get the 28 people and they go down to the Ohio River and they find three skiffs or boats there. And he says, I felt no compunction about stealing those boats as I was already in possession of so much stolen property. I think it shows like how foreign the whole idea of slavery has become. Because when I read that, I was like, what property is he talking about? Oh, oh I didn't get that. Oh, my God. <laughs> you really? I was thinking like he just had other stuff. Like I just, uh, I did not like, yeah, I did not comprehend that. Like seriously. 
That's funny. Yeah. Because I told I told you this earlier, and you were like, didn't respond. I was like, what's wrong with you? Like, that's amazing. That's so weird. And okay. So he and the 28 fugitives make their way across the Ohio River and land in Indiana. And in Indiana, they meet up with John Hatfield, who is a free person of color who's living in Indiana. And he was head of the Vigilance Committee, which was a group that organized to make sure that free people's rights were intact and respected and he lived there with his wife and daughter and they were very much in the business of helping people get to canada and he had a contact named and it's a good name levi coffin so levi coffin was a badass quaker and a badass quaker. yes he was the og badass quaker he and his wife Catherine lived in a home that they built in 1839 and they had the intention of hiding people there and he knew that he could face legal ramifications, but to him, the moral quandary was worse, and the right and wrong was so much more clearly defined. So he had an indoor well built so that people wouldn't know how much water he was using, because that would tip them off to the fact that there were more people there than just him and his family. He had special wagons made with false bottoms, as did another man with a fabulous name, Zebulon Strong. Oh, superhero. <laughs> I know. It has Ze- to be. Zebulon Strong. He was an abolitionist, which apparently abolitionists have the greatest names ever. And the best carriages. Yes. So they both had wagons with false bottoms and they would use them to transport people. And they were in cahoots. And he also had a little garret or attic room that was concealed by a hidden door that was behind a bed in the upstairs room. So he has this home, but he doesn't bring the people to his home. Instead, he's like, I can only hold 17 at my house, and I don't want to split them up, and we need to get them out and going. So he contacts some other abolitionists in the community, and they all get together and bring their carriages, and they make it look like a funeral procession. Mr. Coffin? Makes a funeral procession. Okay. You can't make this up. You could. No one would believe you. So Mr. Coffin and his funeral procession head off toward Cabin Creek. And they have to stop by a cemetery on their way there to kind of sell this idea of the funeral procession. It turns out that an infant that was traveling with the group actually did die en route to the cemetery. So when they got there, they had a funeral for the child. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they continued on to Cabin Creek, which was the settlement comprised of free people of color and interracial families. And they were able to sort of distribute this massive group of people out among those living in the community and kind of make it look like they just belonged there. They suddenly everyone had one visitor and they stayed there until they were ready to move on. And one other great fact is the people who were traveling in this convoy were all outfitted in new clothes that Levi's wife, Catherine, and her anti-slavery sewing circle. Oh, that is badass. That's badass. Had sewn for them. They would make new clothes for everyone. But they get there, they take time and rest, and then eventually they make their way to Michigan and cross the border to Canada on foot. Fairfield said, there's nothing they could do to me that would make me believe what I've done is wrong after witnessing the joy these people had at being free. Coffin continued doing his work. Once he took a pair of girls out of a home, a pair of enslaved girls out of a home they were young, and he dressed them as boys and brought them to his house and hid them in beds. Like, well, like in the mattress. Yes, and like hid them there until it was safe to move them along. It's estimated that in the 14 years that he and Catherine owned this house... They helped 
2,000 people get to Canada. That's amazing. It really is. And it's also, I don't know how they have such a great track record. I really don't. But no one that ever came into their care was returned to slavery. Not one person. So yeah, that's the original badass Quaker. These stories of the Underground Railroad and the Germans and other people in Europe hiding Jewish children are just amazing. I just cannot imagine putting myself, my life, my family out for that cause. You know, I'd like to think that I would. Yeah. But it's really easy to say that. It's a lot different to do it. Yeah. And I really think that these stories of people hiding in the walls, you hear these kind of scary, spooky things of murders and exes haunting you but you have to think of the other side of the coin you know what is the intention behind those hiding in the walls maybe the most important part of this legend is not the fact that there's someone hiding in the walls or in the attic maybe the most important parts are just the story yeah maybe what matters is just the story <laughs> 